Hey there, this is Travis, and I just wanted to record a brief intro before we dive into this special bonus episode of the Women in the Church podcast and an interview and conversation I have with my good friend, Steve Staten. So if you are aware of what has been unfolding in the Northwest United States Fellowship of Churches, of our churches in the ICOC, then the news that the Portland Church of Christ, led by Stephen Lisa Johnson, being removed from the ICOC Church Locator page is not a surprise, though for many, it's really unfortunate. Now, regardless of how you feel about what is unfolding and how it's unfolding, you're going to have your own reaction, response, emotions, feelings, and that's totally normal and natural. So in this conversation with Steve, we're not necessarily going to resolve a lot of those feelings. And this situation for you may feel triggering in that sense, that it's connected in a web to a lot of other things that you may be feeling. Uh, But the reason we wanted to cover this news is because on the podcast, we really focused more on the doctrinal side of this conversation of women's roles in the church and what the Bible teaches about women. And we didn't have a lot of opportunities or we're not able to really spend a ton of time talking about the people aspects of this. That, you know, on the one hand, yes, we do have the Bible and it teaches us who God is and and what he expects from us and how we should live that out. But there's also people involved in this as well, that church is something that's lived out together, that our faith is something that's walked out together. And so when the rubber meets the road and people get involved it's not always super clean. Sometimes it actually gets really messy. So that's why we wanted to make this episode is to take a moment to reflect and look from a top-down 30,000-foot view at what's unfolded in the Northwest uh, Fellowship of Churches here in the United States in regards to the doctrine of women's roles and really what that means for us as a family of churches, not just in this one instance, but also looking beyond to future things that are bound to come up as we continue to grow and mature our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus and what our identity is going to be as a fellowship of churches moving forward. So we're not neglecting the doctrinal aspects of this conversation that, you know, really this whole situation with Portland and the Elder Service Team and the ICOC, it does revolve a lot around doctrine and teaching and church practice, but there is a people side too. And that's what we want to dig into in this episode. Now, before we published this episode, Steve and myself shared it with a wide range of evangelists, teachers, elders, uh, and other respected people in our fellowship, just to make sure that we were being very respectful of the situation. And all of the parties involved were given an opportunity to listen to this episode before it goes live so that no one was caught by surprise and that we were able to take the time to gather any necessary feedback and input to make this episode as edifying as possible. So I hope you enjoy this bonus episode of the Women in the Church podcast. Welcome back to the Women in the Church podcast, where we take a fresh look at what the Bible teaches about women in church for the ICOC. And for this special bonus episode, almost a year removed from the season finale of season one, uh, I have as my esteemed colleague and guest, the one and only Sir Steve Staten. Like I imagine you've been knighted at some level. (laughs) by someone with authority because of the, you know, your reputation preceding you and all that. But seriously, I am very grateful to have you on this episode. Thank you. Thank you very much. No, I haven't been knighted, not even by my family. I'm just Steve. (laughs) 
well, maybe that'll be the next, you know, uh, 2023 resolution, right? Uh, <laughs> Sir Steve, Sir Steve. So the, the reason we wanted to make this podcast episode is because there's been an update within our family of churches regarding this conversation, specifically with the church in Portland, Oregon. So what we want to do in this episode is kind of lay out the timeline of events, of how things have unfolded. So we're working with a common knowledge and understanding of the whole situation, uh, and then also walk through the recent events, talking specifically about this situation, but also connecting it to some other th- discussions that should be had in the future in regards to how we want to move forward as a fellowship of churches. Is that a good way of summarizing our goals, Steve? Yeah, I think so. That makes a lot of sense to me. Thank you. And we'll start right off with some disclaimers. Okay. So if you have listened to this podcast, you know that we don't like to pick winners because that presumes that we have above average knowledge or understanding about things that we weren't necessarily first party witnesses of. And we have the humility, enough humility at least, to recognize that we might not be 100% clear or accurate on some of our thoughts and musings. So we're not going to be choosing a winner and a loser, as in like this side or this group is 100% right, the other side is 100% wrong. As it normally goes with human conflict, there's good and bad that you could say about each perspective. We really just want to be as clear-minded about laying out the facts as much as we can, and then talking from a systematic organizational perspective, kind of analyzing what has happened and what that means for us moving forward. So that's my disclaimer. Steve, do you have any disclaimers that you want to read off before uh, we jump into the content? (laughs) Yeah, I do. First of all, I just want to say I was one of the developers of the Plan for United Cooperation that came out in 2006, working with eight others in Texas after the Seattle International Leaders Conference nominated us to work on it. We had, I think, 40 people from around our churches on a publicly addressed email be able to send in their recommendations. We stripped their names off, consolidated them, looked at them, came up with a draft, worked for a few months, and out came the cooperation agreement, which uh, it was bloated, and it's a period piece today. It's too big, but, you know, the original document. But I'm very uh, grateful for a lot of good that came out of that. And so um, that's, you know, one disclaimer. Second one is Steve has always been a model on the creative side for me, going back to the late 80s, uh, upside down, slingshot. I even hired one of his cameramen for slingshot to shoot a film that I made called On Angel Lake. We used Jeffrey Owens uh, at Steve's uh, help for a play called The Cross and the Gavel. That was produced in three languages uh, with attendances up to 20,000 people back in that the mid nineties, but it was all because I really liked what Steve was able to do and wanted to be him. I'm not, I'm not at that level on that creative side, but also Lisa was inspiration to our daughters. They consider her their favorite preacher. That's what they would say back then. Okay. So, uh, so there's, there's good history, good dynamic and chemistry there. Um, In the Northwest, I served as a consultant in Seattle in Anchorage, in Tacoma, and also for a conflict that coincided with the beginning of the situation in Portland. That was a cross-church situation 
that got me very involved. So I have great affection for the Northwest and respect for all parties concerned. Um, they've been in a difficult situation unrelated even to what we're talking about here in past years. So that's my disclosure. Well said. And you weren't just speaking of yourself in first person. You were referring to Steve Johnson and Lisa oh, yes. Johnson, right? When you're talking yeah. about that Steve that Johnson. <laughs> no, it's Stephen Leslie Johnson, and I'm Stephen Francis Staten. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't want Sir Steve to start going to your head before it even happens, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Start referring to, my, you know, Travis says, yes. So in a nutshell, the big picture of this conflict, if you could just kind of put it in one statement, would be there is a divide in personal and congregational convictions and practices over the proper role of women in the context of a church worship service and leadership in general. But on one side, you have the Northwest group of churches that hold to a more limited participation viewpoint, which historically has been the ICOC's stance on women's roles. And then you have uh, the Johnsons who lead the church in Portland, a church in Portland, if we're going to be super accurate at this point in time. And their stance has been that leadership should really be gifts-based and not gender-based. Right. And, and they went through their own Bible study and teaching to land in that position. It wasn't just, we feel this way, so we're rolling with it. Um, and there's been an attempt over the last couple of years to figure out a way through that divide. Is that an accurate way of kind of summarizing at a high level what's going on? That's a major component, but it's not the only major component. And the other one would be around an established uh, set of basically understanding of when there's a challenge, how we come together and process, think through, collaborate, look at. that. That's a significant uh, component. So uh, you know, also, I should probably just say I'm not complementarian or egalitarian, which is mutuality, basically. I think there's so much nuance, and I will not, you know, most teachers in the teacher service team won't put themselves in either corner either. Um, and so I, I would prefer not to discuss the paradigm, but to stay on, according to our previous uh, interviews, stay on process-related things. Sure. Now, I, yeah, I just want to kind of set the context for what is the actual You said discussion. it well. Yeah, you said it yeah. well. Yeah. Um, and, and, and again, the reason we want to make this podcast is a lot of, you know, the ICOC, we're very serious about sin. Gossip is not one of our strengths. Uh, so word travels fast <laughs> when things happen. And we want to kind of interject some clarity um, into this so that we can kind of head some of those more salacious details off before they pick up too much steam. Um, so let's start out by just kind of laying out a timeline for how this has all unfolded. Um, Cause I know that you have been sometimes peripherally involved, sometimes somewhat directly involved with the parties. So kind of walk us through how this has unfolded and how we've gotten to uh, the latest kind of chapter of this in October of this year. Good. I will do that. Uh, I will say that at the very end of the timeline where we're at right now is a moment of civility um, in a conversation between three representatives of the elder service team and the leadership of the Portland church 
And uh, so we're not in a ruinous moment here. We're in a space that something could happen, a third way, a breakthrough. Um, but uh, so that's where we are today, just from my watching what has been online and so forth. And I would like to commend uh, both the leadership of Portland and the Elder Service Committee for clarifying some important things. It's not about fellowship. This is about an agreement of a um, of churches. So now I'll go back to the timeline. So on September the 10th, 2005, Trisha and I were leaving Seattle uh, from an international leadership conference. We were at the airport. And Steve Johnson walks in down the same terminal that we were in, comes up to us, have a very warm exchange. And he kind of says a, you know, kind of a goodbye. And I didn't know what that meant at the time. Like it was like we were never going to see him again or something. I I realized later he had went with Kit McKean, who was there in Seattle recruiting people. Okay, that's just the facts. So uh, then I thought, well, that's sad. I mean, it's just sad. When I figured out in reverse, that's what happened. Flash forward two months or so, we were working on the cooperation agreement. Months later, March 2006, it gets released. I think we're under 400 churches at that point. And over the next couple of years, you know, 90 plus, maybe 94% of the people affirmed the cooperation agreement. Then on um, October the 8th, 2008, we're now at a delegates meeting in Kiev. So not only do we have the delegate process to sort out things by the end of 2006, end of 2007, we came up with service teams. 2008 in Kiev, we're kind of fine-tuning things. I'm in a unique role from 2007, 2008. I'm the first teacher service team leader. Uh, Gordon Ferguson was selected, but he passed it to me. And then I was nominated to be the point person for all 10 service teams for those two years, which basically was conference planning and problem solving. No authority whatsoever, you know, no money, no authority or anything like that. So I was asked by somebody, I think it was Sean Wooten, it might have been Mark Templer, can Steve Johnson, who was in attendance, leaving Kip's movement, speak to the delegates? And because I had de facto authority for the moment for the meetings, I said, sure, but we want Steve to explain what he learned, lessons learned, why he's coming back, what he would have done different. And he did. I think he had 15 minutes. He did a good job. That becomes important because in hindsight, and I, I figured this out in 2016, is I was now involved in the Northwest. There was a major problem in Montana that caused stress to people. And I was asked to do a Northwest retreat at the towards the end of 2016. And Steve was there. And one of the things that I did in the presentation was walk people through how the conflict resolution processes work, service teams, and so forth. And I just finished a task force on church discipline to make sure we do it right, we're communicative, we're loving, we're process-driven, so that other churches would honor a well-done discipline in one church 
in the other church, okay? Because we had like 12 mishaps, to be honest with you, over the course of years. So Steve invites me out to lunch, and we had an extended lunch, about two and a half hours. And um, I think we even missed a class after my presentation. So he and I got in this really good conversation. Of course, you know, Steve's fun to be with, right? But he says things that makes me realize we did not onboard him in 2008 when he came back. The Portland Church just signed on to the cooperation. And I think they intended to be cooperative, and they have been cooperative to some degree. But the whole idea of delegates, service teams, task forces, collaboration, consensus building, working on things together, they had not been educated on as to how we were processing it in our churches. And he said some things to me that, like, he's not into that. Okay? So I'm going to stop there. Do you have any questions for me before I go any further in the time zone, timeline? Yeah. So I just want to clarify, when we were talking about delegates, service teams, those kinds of things, the, these all trace back to, like, 15, 16 years ago, putting some pieces in place to kind of bring the churches back together post-Crete letter and the fallout that kind of ensued from that. It's like, let's... Let's gather the ships. Let's come back together and figure out what does a path forward look like for us to continue operating together in order to, you know, reach the lost and to grow and be healthy without the top-down leadership structure that we had before that. Right. So that that was the 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 new cooperative agreement that the churches signed on to, the ones that are still a part of the ICOC in order to move forward together. And those right. processes and systems and ways of doing things were generally understood to be, this is how we're going to operate moving forward until something changes. Yep, that's exactly right. So back in the pre-crisis, we were a pyramid. And I, I mean this a little bit facetiously. We had a, a pope, cardinals, bishops, the whole thing. We had very, we very different different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then we had a crisis. World sector leaders, those kind of things. Yeah, yep. exactly. But then we had a crisis and then we were coming back together and not having a pyramid, but more of an umbrella and more process and principle driven. Theoretically, it's not always been that way, but theoretically, that's what we were aiming for. And uh, it's really important to, to explain that the plan for United Cooperation's uh, conclusions about how we were going to move forward needs to be interpreted in, with the delineation. What's the difference between a creed, a statement of faith, or covenant, uh, and there's even more variations of what you could call it, but it was more of a covenant of understanding of best practices. And um, so there's a biblical basis for this and historically in Christianity for this. We were not uh, coming with, you have to do this to be a Christian, but just for us to move along together, that's what we were aiming for. So Anyway, that brings and that's relative. That's pretty standard for Christian groups in right. general. Yeah, uh, you know, so we we don't like to think of ourselves as the denomination, but if you think Southern Baptist Convention, you think the Methodists, Presbyterians, Anglicans, like they have similar sorts of agreements together to be like, if you're going to call yourself an Anglican church, this is what that means. Yeah, and if you're up for that, then yeah, absolutely, you're you can work alongside us. If not cool, then you're just not in this particular pocket of the big C church, and that's fine. 
Correct. And we have a conscience family of churches where we've arrived at a place through mutual experiences and understanding that, uh, and that terminology exists out there to say this is a group, not the group, which we had become, not everybody, but the proponents of our movement came across very much the group, the remnant. And we know we don't want to beat that to today, but that's the reality. So, Maybe another day. Maybe another yeah, day, Steve. Yeah, yeah, right. So interesting. As I walked away from that meeting with Steve, and I thought, this was for me to learn. Like, gosh, I missed that. You know, we should have done that. Um, now Steve realizes that there is a way that we do things. Okay, so in 2017, um, in March the 24th, on a Friday, I happened to be in town, because I'm a consultant, so I travel a lot, but I happened to be in town in Chicago for a Midwest retreat, and Dave Eastman, evangelist of Indianapolis, asked out loud to A.T. Arneson and myself, could the Chicago teachers work on something related to the women's role? Okay, this was not a reaction to anything going on in Portland. Although that stuff was happening, we were barely aware of it. It was like more about possibilities, exploration. And so uh, I ran it by the teachers and James Becknell was the de facto leader of that group. It had been me for years and he took point on it. By late that year, Jeannie Shaw was working on her book and released to some of us a draft of View from Paul's Window. And that went through a number of different iterations. But so Portland, Jeannie, the Midwest were all kind of, you know, simultaneously exploring this. Now, by 2018, there was so much noise coming out of Portland with a lot of hearsay. Hearsay about things that Steve said at a conference or whatever. And some of it was very concerning, but I just mistrust uh, hearsay. I've learned the hard way. But those things became a cause for anxiety in the Northwest. So um, then uh, September 18, 2018, after 400 hours of research, the Midwest paper uh, went through iterations in Chicago, eventually was presented to, in Panama, to the teacher's service team for a formal review Two weeks later, October the 1st, there. And there was not happiness with this paper, both by some people in Chicago and some people on the teacher service team. I was the process viewer of it, and I stand by the process. Um, and it didn't end up with conclusions, and it didn't finish exegeting certain passages which was disappointing to some. They were like looking for the silver bullet to fix all of our problems with the women's role. And the guys didn't feel like they could do that. And one woman uh, working on that as well. So the next day, October the 2nd, Valder said in Panama, uh, let's do a new, new task force. This would be official now. And he led it. And the people that joined it were not, many of them were not complementarians. Probably Valder's more in that direction. I hate the labels, by the way, but you know, on the continuum, he'd be more in that direction. And some of those were joined, in my opinion, because they were afraid it would go too complementarian. Okay, so you know that's kind of the what was going on. And then in February two thousand nineteen, 
is when Lisa posted and started a website that had Welcome to Mutuality. And that term started to be uh, really significant. And then in the Northwest, things went bananas. So I'm going to stop there to see if you have any questions. So we've kind of caught up to, at least in the timeline, where most people that I'm aware of that are kind of like in the know about this situation yeah, kind of arrived on the scene, right? Yeah. Jeannie's book comes out, uh, Gender in the Bible comes out, and now churches are starting to have teaching days, right? Whether it's Los Angeles, New York, Boston. And so we're in like the 2020, 2020 was kind of like an interesting gap year, but 2021 is kind of where we con- caught back up and our, a lot of that teaching started to come out. But this is, this is kind of simmering under the surface the whole time. Yeah. Let me introduce a certain date here that's important. And uh, 2019, I think it was around February, it's definitely the winter, Lynn Green asked me to reach out to the Johnsons. And I basically uh, invited Lisa to, to be part of a potential task force. This was just on a whim. I had no authority. Matter of fact, I had just stepped off the teacher's service team uh, to pass that role from Chicago to James Becknell. Four months later, I was back on because the leader of the service team had a major health issue. But in this time that I'm not in an official role, I tell Lisa, I know I can find people from the service team that would cooperate with you on a task force so that we could have diverse perspectives to look at it. She was very intrigued um, and honored by the thought. Uh, The next day, Steve and I talk and he feels because she has had significant health issues. That would be something that he didn't think would be good at that time. And so the two of us or the three of us ended up uh, talking the next day and kind of just became just a placeholder. Now, one of the things Steve said was, you know, I'm an innovator. Okay. So task forces don't, you know, basically I think he was saying these things slow me down. Okay. (laughs) And the people that were world sector leaders, even geographical sector leaders, I'm going to make a statement as a prototype, not as a stereotype, but commonly I see that consensus building collaboration is not their forte. They're used to being out front and just calling, you know, shots. And he just wasn't really attracted to it, but this is not a point of tension. It's just kind of where it ended. So then between the end of February and March 8th of 2021, we're jumping for two years. You described the two years. They're kind of messy. Everything's kind of crazy. We had COVID. But in early 2021, I'm talking to them, representing the Midwest and them, I'm sorry, the Northwest and them, uh, to stop the relational disrepair that was going on. So I propose the idea of a process. I ran this by Darren Overstreet and possibly Frank Williams as a concept. Then I wrote up something, sent it to the elder service team, Northwest Leadership. And then um, I said, I'm going to go ahead and then create the process. I spent days on it, probably three or four. And uh, there were um, timeline issues for Steve and Lisa that was too hard to do with my 
process. He says, don't send it to me. Don't send it to anybody else. We can't do it now. It was not a no. It was not a resistance. It was a timing issue. And then we had a timing issue in our family as a family member uh, was in the last stages of stage four cancer. And so I had to kind of bail anyway. So it didn't happen. I say all that and put all this there that um, I was very much in the conversations on all sides and the anxiety level at the regional chair issue, not every regional chair, but those who were involved. I mean, some people were saying, let's kick them out of the church. Prominent people, kick them out. This would have been disfellowshipping. Okay. And this, that is just not the right response. But this was kind of typical for some people that that's their, they know two things, you know. They got a hammer and a screwdriver, and that's it. They pull out the hammer, you know. And I was really concerned about that because I could see the repercussions. And so um, anyway, I tell all of that story to say I was kind of trying to pro bono, you know, just say, here I am. Can I help? I'm not. I don't call myself an expert, Travis, by the way. Every person who calls himself an expert ends up having something that shows them they're not. So I call myself a specialist. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's nice. <laughs> And so I was doing the best I can. Okay, questions. So we've basically gotten to 2021. Uh, that's, ironically enough, where production started on this podcast, Women in the Church. And we never explicitly stated it because at the time we wanted to be sensitive to things that were unfolding in the Northwest. But that was a major catalyst for actually doing the podcast. Yeah. It was kind of seeing the number of ways it could end poorly. And... Uh, at least from me and Karina's perspective, wanting to kind of head off premature permanent decisions. Yeah. Right. It's like, how, how do we lower the temperature? How do we spread out the time frame where these decisions are happening and kind of like help bring everyone in to the conversation at a holistic level, not at a regional level, but just like, here is how the rest of Christendom is wrestling through these things through yeah. our lens and, and how can this be a collaborative effort to strengthen us moving forward instead of divide us? Right. Because I remember a lot of the atmosphere in early 2021 was like, what is happening to us? You know, are we destined for a split? Is the ICOC going to split? A lot of fear around newer, more progressive teachings and doctrines. And are those sliding in unbeknownst to the rest of us? Like, and just a lot of uncertainty around what the future held. So I just remember that time period feeling like this could either be end very poorly or we could kind of allow cooler heads to not prevail, but to start to speak up and, and put some perspective on everything to kind of help us. Because we're not very good at these kinds of discussions. Like we just haven't had, as an ICOC, we haven't had many at bats. At, yeah. Here's a new doctrine. What do we think about it and how do we process it? Um, yeah. And even the process of the cooperation agreement, like that hasn't been tested nearly as often as other denominational groups. So, Right. Very good point. So before I uh, will comment on what could happen with our churches, I want to say around uh, June, July 2021, I started to crystallize a perspective about what both sides need to hear from my perspective you know, and by the way, I'm a major church leader. We have 10 people in my church, you know, 
you know, <laughs> a pillar church. Yes. <laughs> so I used to call it a house church, but we've met in a barn, in a field, around fires, in garages, in living rooms, and tea houses. We're a church on the move, you know. <laughs> so I love it. My critique is coming from the perspective as somebody who loves all the parties. I'm self-aware in the sense that it doesn't mean this is the accurate perspective. But um, I think there's pieces for both sides to own. And so I'd say with, okay, Steve, for instance, Steve calls himself an innovator. 1986, he did a speech on how to lead discipleship groups at a, a class at a, I think it was a Boston conference. It was fantastic. He called himself an innovator four or five times in that. And it was basically we were trying to go from having discipling times with everybody every week to having a group to be more efficient. But there's also benefits of a group dynamic if properly guided. And when I left that conference in 89, I was like, we did it right away. And it was it was fantastic. It's not profound, but it was different than what we were doing. So it was good. And he had such humility on the recording, you know. So it's like, hey, do it, whatever makes sense to you, and this, that, and whatever. 1989, he writes an article that's in the Discipleship Magazine, coinciding with the 1989 conference, the last big Boston conference, about discipling through D groups. This is a completely different animal. And he is using language that came from a guy called Napoleon Hill, How to Think and Grow Rich, or something like that. But it's the idea that was used for CEOs in the 20th century for getting on the hot seat to have somebody give you feedback and commentary about what might be wrong and the problem you're trying to solve. But Steve used the hot seat language with very charged language in this article, you know, about don't be defensive, put everything on the table, don't be prideful, all this kind of stuff. Immediately after that conference, Travis, okay, immediately, I'm like, you know, 29 years old, okay? I walk into a room at a hotel when we're all just hanging out, the evangelist, and I'm on the menu. Everybody knows they're talking about, they're going to confront me, okay? My wife is in another hotel room, and all the Midwest people, and these people from outside the Midwest too, by the way, are there to, she's on the menu, Okay, we're being confronted and you can't speak up. You can't defend yourself, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it was horrific. It lasted for about as a phenomenon in our churches. From what I can tell, for about six months, Now, some places longer. I was doing research on this in 2021. I was I'm writing a book. Okay, so I'm doing all this kind of lessons learned from our past. Okay. And I realized Steve, as the innovator, innovated something that could have used peer review, okay? Could have used a task force, could have used a team. And so I think that's what Steve needs to wrestle with, and Lisa, that it's best to process through multiple disciplines, multiple voices across multiple geographies to help stay as a family. I think it's still acceptable to come out at the end in a different position, I defend Stephen Lisa's right and the Portland's right to be able to do that. But they needed that this last decade, and Steve needed it earlier. Okay, but I'm, my next statement is for ICOC leaders, knowing that this puts me in jeopardy. 
most of my work comes from ICOC churches. And considering nearly every regional chair affirmed the decision with Steve, I put myself at risk to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway, because truth needs to be told. We have bigger fish to fry than this situation in Portland. We have leaders that are not tethered. That means held accountable to their congregations, to other people that lead in an old school fashion that seem like they haven't learned anything in 20 years. We have hurts and pains out there. We have top-down command and control people. We have people that whose own spirituality and righteousness in prominent roles are, go- are a big concern to a number of people. And we're focusing on this? Seriously. After all that we've been through, So I think there's a mistake being made. I support the cooperation approach and the stance on the cooperation issues that has been our intent all along. Because cooperation is supposed to stand for something. The reason you have agreements is it means we will have processes and principles in place to keep people safe. But we haven't even been doing that great at that. So to take this stance with Stephen, I think there was a third way. I really do. And I can talk about that if you ask me. But you've just heard my position. Sure. And now we're getting specifically to recent events. And that history is important for some of the statements that were made last month in October. Yeah. And some of the wording that you'll hear. Um, so right now, if you're listening to the podcast, we're going to play an unedited clip from uh, when Lisa Johnson announced to the, their church in Portland that they had received word from this elevator service committee, kind of updating their relationship status within the ICOC. I know that Steve last week um, at the end of the service, he explained that uh, we had been called, uh, well, we had been contacted and asked to attend a meeting on Wednesday evening. We had been, we had been asked, and it was by the um, ICOC's El- Elder Service Committee that had asked to meet with us. And it was, a, it was three of the men that we had met with about six months ago. I mean, a year ago was the last time, I guess, we met with them. And um, so we wanted to what happened in that meeting. Um, So I'm going to read this so that I get sort of the details in. Um, We are family. We're transparent. We talk about everything. We, you know, we we tell everything. So that's part of it. And and that's wonderful, I think. Um, On Wednesday, the 19th, Walter Evans from Philadelphia, Frank Kim from Denver, and Jerry Sugarman from Los Angeles, representing the ICOC and the Elder Service Committee, met with us, Mike and Flo Mathis, Bob and Marsha Bertolot, and Steve and Lisa, Steve and I, to let us know that a decision had been made to remove our congregation, the Portland Church of Christ, from their list of churches. The reason that was given for this is that they have concluded that complementarianism will be what will be taught and practiced in the ICOC, their fellowship of cooperating churches. 
The Portland Church practices mutuality, a gift-based rather than gender-based belief of service and leadership, not complementarianism. As you know, we have taught and practiced the belief that women and men can indiscriminately preach, teach, lead, or serve based on their gifts, the gifts, their, their abilities, their willingness, rather than on gender. Walter Evans said that this difference has created a mess, and his hope is that by removing us, we can work together. He feels that our presence as part of the ICOC is a stumbling and is interfering with our ability to find a way to have unity without uniformity. And perhaps that this will help us to find a better way of fellowshipping one another. Walter clearly and very kindly stated that his hope is that by removing us, relationships can improve. Conversations can continue and be more productive. They wanted to emphasize that they believe we are saved disciples of Jesus, but not included in the cooperating family of churches, what they define as the ICOC, which they have defined exclusively teaching complementarianism. But they wanted us to know that they consider us to be their be in their restoration family of churches. That said, this is not a dis they were very clear. This is not a disfellowshipping or a marking of any kind. But it has to do with unity in their organization, the co the cooperating churches. They also said the Portland Church and all of our members are welcome at any and all ICOC events, such as elders retreats, teen camp, campus and singles events, all conferences that we are welcome. So our members here should really, there should be little or no change in daily life, events, or relationships. We look forward to many open-ended conversations filled with love and filled with hope as we all continue to study and strive to grow in our understanding of Jesus' dream for his church. Let us make it our goal to please him, to please God. All right, so that is the, the statement in its full from the Portland Church. And, and we just wanted to share that so that way you had that unedited perspective from them. So what you won't hear is an audio recording from the Elder Service Committee because they didn't make such a statement. Um, so Steve, what do you know about that email exchange, that meeting from the Elder Service Committee? What was communicated from their perspective to the Johnsons? So I don't have any uh, record other than what I heard in the recording, but what I heard in the recording is complementary language was used um, with the, um, the Portland leaders. I talked to a prominent person who talked to one of the elder service committee people who said, we're not using complementary language in our churches but that's kind of the place we stand, but there's a whole lot of room for difference. So I feel right now at this point, Travis, there's a contradiction. And I don't think it's because of deception, by the way. I think it, there's just a contradiction of messaging between what was said to Portland and then what was said to those who are troubled by what's happened. 
So I think we've got some stuff to clear up. And that's not unusual under dramatic events. You know, you know, things happen like that. But let me tell you my take on whether we are complementarian as a movement. A number of times at conferences, going back to the 80s and definitely in the 90s, there would be a woman standing up there with her husband directing comments at men. Sometimes even say, now men don't listen because I'm a woman. But, and there would never be repercussions for it. So let me flash forward to uh, the first few years after the upheaval uh, in the Chicago church leadership at a staff meeting. My daughter Talia came back from a dig in Israel. She was a Wheaton College student in biblical archaeology. And I had arranged for her to share with what she experienced and saw. She was digging in Gath, where Goliath was at, you know. And it was our first of two trips there. I talked to a couple of the men on our staff, elders, who came from a conservative background, Church of Christ background, if they felt fine about it. They, they were ecstatic about it. This is such a great opportunity to hear from one of our own from such a exploit. So she did. She did a great job. In teacher service team meetings over the last five years, we've held at least the position that if somebody's speaking from a subject matter specialty or a discovery in the Bible has zero authority attached to it, but it's about this epiphany, this insight, that it's a non-issue. We went even one step further in this discussion that we should never, men included, be speaking from a place of authority, directiveness, before the church, unless we're letting that be known that's what we're doing, and we should have had the buy-in of the other ecclesiastical leaders, okay? But women would be able to share what they've learned from God's Word and teach before men. I know that sounds like it contradicts one of the things that Paul said, but I don't think it does. Not even contradicting the rest of Paul. Well, that tells me we've really never been full complementarian. And there's a bunch of nuance. In our church on the run, you know, church on the go, last year, a guest at our house church, our church, said, could we talk about baptism? There's a Quaker, Quaker slash evangelical. And I said, why don't we do that the next two weeks? And Talia presented Old Testament, Intertestament, New Testament insights. I did New Testament, early church. A month later, this gentleman was baptized. Okay. Did we cross a line because this happened? I mean, that's where it's starting to sound. Like we want to muzzle the gift the scholarship, the experience, the devotion of women with that position. So I think we're we're in a messy spot, Travis. We gotta we gotta do a better job going back and clean up this mess because I don't think we're standing on solid ground right now. And I think you hit the nail on the head when it comes to it's not the spirit or the heart of a lot of these discussions. Like when you have conversations and you're not reading it second, third hand, it's not we need to silence these troublemakers. But when you are adopting language that is associated with a certain historical position, that isn't really even what we've held, that becomes problematic. Because now you're, you know, for lack of precision, 
painting yourself in a corner that you then have to climb out of. And I'll go so far to say is that the three men that were cited, uh, these are good guys. They would agree with, they would have no problem with the illustrations that I brought up about women being able to share from that experience. That's not their position. They're not dogmatic, legalist, old guard, trying to muzzle. They're trying to manage something that has so many layers to it, so much history, so many personalities, and in a process, and I'll say on the, our teacher service team, we, own, we have to own some of this because our process along the way had bumpiness, and there's a difference between what certain papers have said, how churches have interpreted it, how the Elder Service Committee interpreted it, and how Kidogo, with their video, have interpreted it. I th- this is not about bad guys. This is about all of us saying, hey, we could have done a lot better. And that's why we need to look for a third way. So let's kind of like focus in, I think, on the most recent update, not to put too much weight on it, but it is the thing that people are talking about, the illustrious, holy, magical church locator page. Um, <laughs> where <laughs> I say that a little tongue in cheek where, you know, that, that kind of becomes the, signat- the signatory of like, we have blessed you, we have christened you as like an official ICOC church, that the step was made to remove the church that, that the Johnsons lead from that page. And, you know, if you listen to Lisa's quote, it's certainly not the end of this discussion. It's just kind of like the latest chapter of where things stand. Yeah, yeah. Walk, th- walk through why, from your perspective, the Elders Service Committee felt like this was the best path forward for both parties to come to some kind of cooperative agreement in the future. Because if, if you're on the outside looking, it could feel like, all right, they just drove the spike in this thing. It's over. Complete division. They're no longer in, but that doesn't, from my reading of it, that doesn't seem to be the heart of what they're trying to do. So, so kind of like walk through why this was the decision that may have ultimately been made and what the future, what we're hoping the future holds for these parties. And I actually can't say with uh, a strong sense of confidence because I wasn't in any of those discussions. I think I was on one Zoom in the last three years about it. But being that there are some evangelists and representatives in our fellowship that are super strong on the topic. It was creating such a conversation for so long that I became, it became a stressor. Um, And I I say that with compassion, a stressor that uh, sucked up the energies, the conversations, and there wasn't the workability to follow the cooperation, collaboration things with the Johnsons. I'm giving them a little bit of a pass because I don't think they ever caught in into what the the new fellowship was like. I mean, we were really clear between 2005 and eight, moving in a direction. I don't think the Johnsons got onto some of that stuff. But this just created a, a it's like a, a, you know, when you have a computer software, there's a couple of things going on in your computer. One thing in the background is sucking up all your resources. So you can't do what you're trying to do. I think this was sucking up resources and it does make sense to me why the Elder Service Committee did that, trying to find graceful language, trying to keep the door open, to catch our breath, their breath. I get that. Now, I have really intimate, close friends who probably won't agree with what I'm about to say, but I think a third way could be, first of all, improving our cooperation practices. 
really holding people accountable for the things I mentioned earlier on this podcast about troublesome figures, okay, and uh, recognizing on the Disciples Today website those who have fully brought it, bought into the practices, the processes for how we were going to be answerable, appeals processes so that we can resolve things and work together and task forces and all that, but also recognize that we have friends and beloved brothers and sisters in Christ that are not as committed to all those things, but we still love and even still keep them at some place on the website. I don't know whether it's an asterisk or another spot, but I think I think it's important for clarity because some people want to be part of something that has that integrity of answerability and so forth. But I also don't want to lose sight of the people that have trouble. I'll give you a really good example for this. When we went through this process up through 2009, uh, a lot of the Southeast was not interested in affirming. And there was, in their minds, conscience reasons. And American history explains some of that, okay? And so they didn't. But in reality, they were highly cooperating, they were even participating in service teams and task forces and things. But there was a principle. I think we did the right thing by saying, okay, this is not a big deal. We'll get through it. And then at some point, I think Mike Tolliver wrote a page and a half version of the cooperation agreement. He emailed me a copy. I met with Atlanta leaders of eight ministries, and most of them affirmed it in one weekend or maybe one month because we showed them the respect. And I think we've got to have some wiggle room. Anyway, that's my third way. I think still recognizing those extended places. Uh, Like, for instance, there's a church in the Atlanta family, I won't mention it, that still will not affirm the cooperation agreement. They cooperate in every way. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, right. They didn't sign the paper, but in action. And, in and there never was a paper anyway. to sign. That language right. was part of the problem. There never was anything to sign. You could you could whisper in somebody's ear, and that was the aff- affirmation of the cooperation agreement. <laughs> so you're hitting on a couple things that I want to get to in a minute, as far as organizational structure, practices, moving forward, those kind of things. One other clarifying thing, what does it mean because we've talked about cooperation agreement, talked about 06, 07, 08, service teams, committees, that kind of stuff. When someone says from within the structure of the ICOC, cooperating ICOC congregation, what does that entail? Like, what does that mean? Because you could read that any number of ways, especially if you don't have the context of kind of the structures that we have in place. It's a good question. And um, as a side comment, there are churches that have affirmed that don't fully really post Disciples Today or Hope Worldwide or other uh, signatures on their website. So, But in its good version of what it means, um, it's the announcement of major events, conferences, participating in those. It means if there is a conflict uh, that gets unresolved locally, there is a potential, there's a process internally to hear it and then to go outside into that region and then to it, maybe even a nearby region if it fails there, and all the way to eventually the Elder Service Committee. Uh, two versions of that have appeared in the last 12 years, one in 2010 and one last year. 
And they they resemble a bit of what Jethro was talking in uh, Exodus 18 and Moses in Deuteronomy 1. There's levels of competency and independence and, uh, you know, uh, scaling, I guess, for responding. So cooperation is a commitment that nobody should feel trapped by an unjust closed system if they work through the proper channels. Okay. In practice, it's not gone that great. It can get better, and it will get better, but in practice, it hasn't been that great. But that's what the intention are is. So for funding for Disciples Today and for Hope Worldwide, things like that. Now, when a decision is made, all churches will do this and this and this. You might get like 30 out of the 34 regions saying yes. But even when they do, it doesn't always, the end result isn't always seamless and perfect for what happens. But there's a goodwill component to it, which I really respect and have observed that. Uh, I think one of the funding places might be Kidogo. Now, Kidogo is a for profit entity where just about everything else in the ICOC is a 501c3 and operates that way, or a subset of a 501c3, like a church or charity and so forth. But and I th- and I mentioned that because I think people support Godogo or at least some of the churches do. So that would be like a a voting uh, system. And I'm glad that you kind of clarified all of those things because you know you could hear something like cooperating churches and think like how have we not been cooperative in a spirit? But it actually has a very specific context too, not just cooperating and is in engaging in a dialogue, but submitting to a process that we agreed to collectively. Yeah. Is is that accurate? Yeah. So and I'll give you an example. And this is another place I can't get my head around, but I don't have all the information, although I've been involved to a degree. But there's a church that's still on Disciples Today that doesn't send people to conferences very much, doesn't make ICOC announcements, has been very difficult. There has been outcries from this particular church, to me in particular, for 20 years. But Stephen Lisa in Portland, I'm sure, have been announcing these events, these conferences and so forth. So like, I would just like to see things be like just and even and, you know, so forth. And, and maybe there's a backstory that I still don't know about a situation that I have been involved in. But I think this is a wake-up call moment for our family of churches to rethink, are we pursuing shalom and justice, or are we just trying to make the church great again? Yes, and that the, the million-dollar question, what does the future hold? And, you know, as we're talking through, like, what does cooperating agreement mean and, you know, making statements and certain regional groups affirming and some not, you know, I just think back to, you know, the ICOC 3.0 effort uh, that ultimately fell flat where it, it wasn't that people didn't want a better future. It was just that there was a, a disagreement about what that future should look like. Yeah. And, and, and that's ultimately the question, like, and, and something we've been trying to figure out for the last 20 years coming up on the 20 year anniversary of the Crete letter is like, what does the future look like now that we don't have our original identity? Right. So might have some, some things to tease at the end of this episode, uh, we'll see. We'll see if I uh, end up saying anything. But uh, but yeah, so I think at, at the heart of it, this is a symptom of a larger discussion yeah. about 
how do we want the ICOC to function? What does healthy collaboration look like? What are healthy expectations, right? So it's not just whatever you want to bring to it, but it's like we're, we're mutually agreeing to this set of understandings and processes so we can work together effectively. Um, and it's not just kind of all over the place because this is not the last time that something like this is going to happen, whether it's a new teaching, a new church practice, um, one region wanting to do one thing separate from other regions. These are tools that still need to be matured and developed so that as we move forward and more of these things come up, we actually have the tools in place to address them from right. a place that's healthy and holistic and is like, yes, we, we see that that is actually a good thing that we want, regardless right. of whether you agree with the outcome or not. Yeah. I have uh, – the word optimism is a bit of a humanistic word, but I do feel optimistic and hopeful that with some – with a few critical decisions, uh, we can really turn this corner – and I, I base that on my work in Los Angeles. Uh, they've got nine regions, and I've worked in four or five of them. They're a delight to work with, the L.A. Church leadership. And I've worked very closely with Steve Marici, Stephen Jackie, and Raphael uh, in the past, uh, Peter Garcia, and others. And the team is so many people there. I mean, you know, Doug Weber, Kevin Halland, Kevin and Trey, and others. And uh, there's just like this humility of we haven't got this figured out and let's rethink so they don't want to like go back and be like the old icoc but better minus a few mistakes they want to be like let's just re-examine the scriptures rethink and so forth just a lot of humility and i'm closing up my latest project with them this next month and also um you know, I don't have anything on the horizon, so I'm not saying this to like, you know, whatever. I'm just saying it's been awesome. I have other uh, client congregations I feel the same way about. Most of them actually, like they invite people in, not just me. People have invited David Young in. Take a look at our laundry. Tell us what you think is dirty. What do we need to do? And um, there's a lot of humility out there. But I do think until we get our principles and processes to be more important than personalities, we're going to be stuck. Do I think we're going to split? No. What I think is going to happen is we're going to balkanize. And that is, you know, the term used where everybody goes to their corner, they speak nice to one another, but don't really interact. And so what happens in a balkanized world, you go, I don't know if I can move to that country or that state or that city because they are those who do this, this, and this, you know. Um, and then it puts us in situations to have multiple churches in the city, which isn't always bad. Sometimes it's even ideal. See, not even anti-biblical. But I think that's the problem. We're just going to fracture slowly with a feigned sense of, hey, we're all good at conferences, but not really. And we don't have to look very far to our own heritage and the restoration movement to see how that played out with the disciples of Christ, churches of Christ and the Christian churches. Yeah. Right. A very similar thing happened. Yeah. So to kind of put a bow on this conversation, because we're coming up on an hour, hopefully if you're listening to this, um, this can shed some light on some of the background context for these decisions and what went into it, that it was not even primarily a doctrinal thing that got to this point. It was more about different sets of expectations 
coming to the conversation, different commitment levels to certain processes and systems, and us trying to feel our way towards some kind of collaborative nature as we kind of wade through this whole conversation where there isn't a super crisp, clear, this is the correct biblical interpretation on this practice kind of thing. Yeah. And that's, that's not always fun to hear that it's like, yeah, it's, guess what? Christianity is messy sometimes. And, and <laughs> we can be on the receiving end of that messiness. Uh, and it's not always pleasant. And we don't always sing Kumbaya right afterwards. But I, I would encourage you to remember that in the book of Acts, uh, Paul's ministry did not always go great. Right. That in fact, at one point in time, there was such a, a rift between him and the people that were going along his missionary journey that a certain person named John Mark become very infamous in the book of Acts and left Paul's ministry, abandoned him completely. And you might think, wow, that's awful. Like the apostle Paul, the, the original, the OG left that ministry. Well, he's the one that penned the first gospel. So sometimes these things that seem really terrible or can feel like the end of something is actually just the beginning of something greater and that God is actually doing something greater than we could imagine or perceive of in the time. So Leave room for God to do something incredible, even when things aren't going the way that you would hope they would. Yeah. This story you just mentioned is with Paul and Barnabas, actually. That's a case of adventurous civility that I was mentioning earlier. They went both went about did what they were going to do for God, and things became clear over time. A story that's not very well known, when the church in Indianapolis uh, went through a major upheaval and split into, in 1993... The administrator of the church and his wife went to the two different churches, okay? And they stayed in the different churches all the way up until the upheaval of 2003. And I'm not going to mention their names, but they're lovely people. And I stayed in contact with the administrator. He was very loyal to me when I led that church years before. He was the real deal. I actually followed his logic for why he you know, did what he did. And now they're back together in the church called Rise Indy. I think that's their name now. But, uh, and their relationship survived it. I think it's important that we don't close chapters too soon. We allow ourselves to be suspended until we have clarity, because otherwise we'll follow what uh, one sociologist calls improvised news. We make up a story in our mind with partial information to give ourselves satisfaction that we've got a good take on it, but we don't, and we don't even realize that we've been part of improvising it, you know, and whatever people believe about Portland or about the elder service committee, I respect um, everybody in this situation. I thank uh, Walter and uh, Frank for the comments I heard attributed to them in this decision and for Steve and Lisa, uh, specifically Steve for making sure we didn't hear about a breach. We heard about a tense moment in the best possible light that it could be put in. So this is not a crisis. This is something that needs a third way. And uh, so I remain hopeful. Yeah. And that third way you talk about, I think to pull back a little bit as we wrap this episode, the major question that organizationally the ICOC will need to wrestle through in the coming years is how denominationally do we want to act? So a denomination being a group of churches, not like we're following a certain person over Jesus, as has been taught historically in our movement of churches, uh, but simply a subset of a group of Christians with a crystallized set of unifying beliefs and doctrines. Right. 
how closely do we want to adhere to that organizational model where you would affirm certain creeds, doctrines, and church practices as a way of identifying with a group of churches? Is that what is best? Is that what we want to actively pursue? Does that make the most sense? Or is it more of a loosely connected fellowship that's relationally connected and holds to the core doctrines of Christianity? And there is some wiggle room on things that that people have very strong convictions about, but we're not burning the bridges of fellowship. We still find ways to work together where you have churches where they teach, women can preach on Sundays, other churches that say, no, we don't see this being biblical, but yet still seeing each other as cooperating and working together for the mission of God. Yeah, That is an affirmative decision that to this point we haven't made. I say the collective we, not like me personally and you, but like the collective we, like what does our future look like? But that will ultimately give us the filter for for how to approach situations like this in the future. Yeah. And I agree with everything you just said. I would just want to add for the record and every opportunity I have and the things that I'm writing, and I've got a book coming out next year, that I am going to make the case for us to be biblically ecumenical. It just ecumenical in its root just means all the world as one. Okay, but that would biblically would be all of those in a John seventeen, Ephesians four, and other verses construct that we look and respect and value and appreciate and invite in those who follow Jesus that are not coming from our tradition, and we bless them as well. I think that's one of the the things that you'll find everybody that's gone back to school in the last twenty years. Some of the most profound ways to help them go forward, self-included, has been things I've learned from Christians outside of our think. And I think, likewise, we can help other groups who are also stuck. Amen. So, again, hopefully that provides some clarity. Uh, If you have heard hearsay, rumors, online discussions about what's going on, who said what, the context, what does it mean— and, and hopefully create a, a common understanding of, of what it looks like moving forward and also just setting the context of, of where does this sit in the broader uh, the broader sense of the word for other things that we as an ICOC family of churches are trying to wrestle through. So, Steve, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, some of these things we'll, we will be discussing and digging into further on a future <laughs> podcast that will be launching in 2023. So I'll definitely... Make sure to drop a bonus episode here when that comes out to let you know about it. But until then, stay faithful. Thank you.